Hey guys, so we are back and we are so excited to talk to you about this week's topic um, because it's something that is close to so many girlfriends, including these two girlfriends talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So we wanted to talk to you today about uterine fibroids. Um, It's something that many people probably have heard about at some point. Maybe some others still don't know exactly what there are or what the impact is. And that's why we want to get into it today. All right. So for our medical leave segment, we're going to dig right into it because there's a lot to cover. Uh, when it comes to fibroids, I always tell people... It's well, just what like real- are fibroids? You know what? Pull up, pull up, pull up. <laughs> so fibroids. Okay. I describe its girlfriends as disorganized muscle that forms inside the the uterus that can turn into these little balls fireballs i know you call it but basically it's just literally like a ball of muscle the uterus is already muscle but basically these little tumors and i don't like to use that word because tumor always feels like oh my gosh is it cancer they're typically benign really 99 percent of the time there are small chances like less than one percent of them being lyomyosarcoma which is a cancer but most women who have fibroids which is 80% of Black women and 60 to 80% of women throughout the U.S. is typically a benign tumor. And really, it's just that it's taking up space and taking blood supply that can cause problems. That's how I would describe it. Tell me your spiel, because I know we all have our, like, sayings. It might connect with different people. Yeah, so I I agree. It's, you know, I was um, partially educated in the South and I had one mentor who called them fireballs. So that's what sticks to me. Um, But they are, you know, some people used to call them knots on the womb. Um, You know, you hear fibroids, myomas, lyomyomas, um, all of it to mean that these are smooth muscle, benign tumors of the uterus. The tumor part comes because they all arise from one cell that is keep rapidly dividing and dividing and dividing, which is cells should kind of have a way to stop growing at some point. All of our cells in our body should have a check where they, you know, um, divide to a certain degree and then stop. But these fireballs or fibroids continue to grow. What distinguishes them from cancer is they don't invade other tissues, but because of the way they grow and they're kind of disorganized, they push out um, normal growing tissue. Mm. And so if you've ever seen pictures of a fibroid uterus or had fibroids yourself or seen it on ultrasound, you can see that it kind of distorts the uterus instead of smooth contours you'll see all of these little bumps and hills and valleys. Sometimes you can even feel it in your stomach. And that's where, um, that's the fibroids are doing that. Okay. So you kind of talked about the contours of the uterus being different. And that goes to where we start talking about different types of fibroids. So I would say it's kind of like real estate, location, location, location. So we'll start from the outside and work our way in. So the outer portion, which sometimes I've seen patients or excuse me, girlfriends who have had, let's say like 11 centimeter, which is pretty big. That's larger than a baby's head, uh, fibroid on the outside or subserosal. And that doesn't necessarily impact um, your period per se, or it doesn't necessarily impact um, your ability to get pregnant, but it is bothersome because it takes up space. Uh, And those can typically be a little bit more 
easy to manage and sometimes they have to get pretty large to cause problems, but subserosal definitely, um, they, you know, they're taking up space and we know what it's like to take up space. And sometimes you don't want people taking up space or things taking up space in your uterus. You know, that's why we have <laughs> options that we'll get into later. So take us another layer deeper, Dr. Tia. Absolutely. So I usually describe location of the fibroids like a cantaloupe and so I hope that most people know what a cantaloupe looks like because I think that helps with the visualization so you know right now what we're talking about with the subserosal fibroids those will be fibroids outside the rind so it's as if, as if the outside of the cantaloupe was like bumpy and lumpy instead of smooth when we go one layer deeper into like the orange flesh that's the muscle layer of the uterus and so fibroids in this location are called intramural. Um, these are the ones that can start to cause a bit more problem. One, because they may take up and distort space of the actual muscle of the uterus. Um, two, because they actually attract blood vessels to grow and kind of direct blood flow to themselves to grow. Um, and so it can contribute to heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, and painful periods because it kind of disrupts the way the uterus cramps during menses. Um, and so these are probably the most common types of fibroids seen, um, definitely can have a little bit more of a gynecologic and reproductive impact. Again, location is important, but sometimes size and number are important mm -hmm. too. Um, and so if there are, you know, one or two small ones, it may not be as much of an issue as if there's one large one or multiple small and medium-sized fibroids, you know? So that's, it's usually when we're trying to make an assessment of, you know, how to treat or what to do, it's all of these things together, location, um, size, and then, you know, the number of fibroids also. And right, then so there's... Take it deeper. Yes. One <laughs> where more the layer. seeds of the cantaloupe are basically. Yes. Uh, which is also where the, which is the endometrial cavity, which we call subserosal. And so submucosal, sub <laughs> sorry. So the submucosal portion, that means you're in the actual cavity, which is where your period tissue comes from and also is where a baby can develop. So you can imagine that if you have a fibroid there, you can have much heavier periods. And I describe it kind of like a faucet, like it turns on out of nowhere. And then it just, cause literally you just have access into your cervix where you can bleed from just quickly. It's not like you have to kind of travel to the cavity and then work your way out. It literally can be like a faucet. Then um, also you can imagine it affects fertility because if you have, you know, the, in order for, for fertility to actually take place, you have to implant that fertilized ovum or egg into the endometrium. If you have a big old fiber blocking you or a whole bunch of them, it turns into an obstacle course and the pregnancy can't really implant where it needs to. So that can also, fibroids in the, sub, in the cavity, submucosal endometrial cavity can also cause problems. And then sometimes some aren't even linked in to the submucosal. Sometimes they're just hanging out in the cavity. They're like mostly in the cavity. Submucosal means 50% are still in that muscle layer, that orange part. But if you kind of imagine like the tethered bits of uh, cantaloupe seeds. A mango. What you call it? A mango, like how you can just pull it off the tree. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Somebody's feeling tropical today. Uh, <laughs> and then there's just the intracavity ones that are just sitting in there. And they mostly are in the cavity. And you can really imagine that they're obstructing. Um, they have lots of blood flow, number one. And then also they're obstructing 
uh, things like implantation. So, and again, size, I think the interesting part about submucosal fibroids is that sometimes size doesn't matter because even the tiniest little booger could cause lots of problems. You would think oh, yeah. it's like, oh, this thing is massive. And that's why, you know, like size definitely matters, especially on the other layers. But you'd be surprised how much damage one little fibroid, please, we have polyps, which is a separate topic. Um, they're more like skin tags and then you endometrial cavity, endometrial cavity, they can cause just as much, wreak as much havoc in terms of bleeding. So really it's not about size in the submucosal cavity portion. It's really about just the presence of fibroids can really throw things off. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, it's just to say that, you know, fibroids are super, super common, you know, up to 70% of all women may have fibroids at some point, most women may not actually have any symptoms. The issue is amongst women of African descent throughout the diaspora, we see very high levels of uterine fibroids um, that can be up to 80% or more. The other, you know, kind of curious thing is Black women tend to um, have these fibroids earlier in life mm -hmm. and become more symptomatic. There's been studies by one of my mentors, Dr. Erica <laughs> Marsh, that showed that women in their 20s were having fibroids, sonographic evidence of fibroids on ultrasound, even before they were having symptoms. And that's on par with a decade earlier than most other women. Yes. And that's why sometimes I wonder if I had gotten an ultrasound in my 20s, like, would I even know? Because I think I was, wait, I was there. I was 29, actually, when I found out I had fibroids. So yeah, I forgot I was in my 20s. So um now, did you ever hear about fibroids from your family members at all? Had you ever heard yes. that term before medical school? Yes. I had an auntie who had a, um, she had to get a hysterectomy because she had fibroids and literally she looked nine months pregnant. So I, you know, it was like, it was obvious. And you just did, I mean, it wasn't that it was obvious. You just thought, you know, oh, you're putting on weight. But when, you know, we found out that she had to get surgery, it was like, oh, that's when I, for me, the light went off. But I will say probably the first time I was really, really familiar with it before that was Maya from Girlfriends. When Maya, I love that segment when she got her myomectomy because that really, really made me like, see, this is a serious issue. This is something that you talk about your girlfriends with. This is something that your girlfriends rally and comes to the hospital for you for. And like, it almost prepped me for my own experience. So to me, that was literally my first introduction. Shout out to Mara. Brock Akil. I was just about to I say, shout out to Mara Brock Akil because I referenced that show so frequently. You know, Joan had the um, talk about freezing eggs and fertility with her doctor. I mean, they really hit the head on the nail, uh, the nail on the head with so <laughs> many different health topics, you know, and social topics regarding Black women. Um, but I agree, like, as growing up, you know, I'm not exactly sure I knew what it was, but I'd heard about them through aunties who, mm -hmm. you know, I believe one of them definitely had a hysterectomy. Um, one of them, you know, I guess maybe I was in high school when she was kind of at the peak of all of the fibroid symptomatic and heavy bleeding and I mean, you know, adult diaper level kind of bleeding and mm -hmm. she really didn't want a hysterectomy. Um, and I think she eventually had um, uterine fibroid embolization, which really improved her quality of life um, and allowed her to avoid a big surgery. So it definitely was like in my consciousness. And then I met this young doctor, Dr. Joy, on a trip <laughs> to Ghana 
And we bonded over fibroid sisters. So there were four of us in our group, all women of African descent from all over the diaspora. And we all had fibroids in our like late 20s, early 30s, young women. Um, and so unbelievable. <laughs> crazy but you know statistics be statistic here you know like i'm just like it's a statistic you know we saw like we're the four out of the five where's the fifth you know (laughs) that is so true clearly there's a fifth Um, member who don't have five words of our crew that we just don't know where they are and i mean it just brings it back around to this need to one have some openness about it Mm -hmm. right talk about this this needs to be a brunch topic like all the other things we talk about because it's so common things that you're going through things that you um experience doctors that you trust treatments that you've tried might be of interest to people around you and so i do think it's important that we talk about it um you know two is to talk to your family that's always going to be my soapbox but i think sometimes you know i'm still surprised by how much medical secretism there is in families shame um intentional you know kind of secrecy um and unfortunately that does damage especially for us especially for something as genetically linked as uterine fibroids and honestly true true story like one of my aunties when when she had her hysterectomy, she just popped up missing. And we had to call different hospitals. Like, I think she might be getting her hysterectomy. And that's how we found her. And she made me feel like, I remember I was like, probably my, maybe it was my early 20s. And then she was like, yeah, you don't understand. That was a risky surgery. I could have died on the table. And so I used to think like, oh my gosh, hysterectomies are just like, the worst. They're one of the most common surgeries in the U.S. just of note. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I was ready to do, I'm like, oh my God, it's a hysterectomy. But, you know, it's, there's different ways of doing it now. And we'll get into that in a later episode. But, you know, I think the secretism is everyone feels like there's, you know, this mystery they need to keep around their own medical diagnoses. And that is definitely private information, but it's also important to, you know, that impacted me and how even as a future surgeon, I approached, you know, gynecology and then also someone who had fibroids in the future, you know, it made me scared. Like, oh my gosh, is something going to happen to me when I have surgery? So it's really important Mm -hmm. to be transparent, you know, and I think it's vulnerability. And so in the words and in the the, the spirit of vulnerability, our Around the Way Girl segment today includes us. (laughs) So we obviously are affected by fibroids personally. And so we are going to share our fibroid journey. So You go first, Dr. T. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, my journey is ongoing. I still have fibroids. I think I first learned I had fibroids maybe around 36 doing an ultrasound, actually, when I was undergoing egg freezing. Mm. And so there were fibroids there. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. I've, you know, pretty much always had really um, terrible period pain and stuff Mm. like that. And, but, you know, with age, fibroids grow and additional fibroids can join the party. And so that's something that, you know, is ongoing even until now and working with different ways. How do you manage the symptoms? How do you manage uh, uterine fibroids? You know, what are the different approaches that you want to take? And I know we're going to talk a little bit about some different surgical options and and treatment options, you know, and so it's something that definitely is still affecting me to this day. You know, one thing that I do think is interesting, because I get a lot of questions about this from Mm. girlfriends, is like, what caused fibroids? Mm. And, you know, initially we don't know, or up until now, we still don't 100% know 
we know there are some leading theories about um, endocrine disruptors that maybe um, certain people have a little bit more susceptibility, um, genetic links, family links, you know, women of African descent. But then when we're hit with these endocrine um, disrupting um, chemicals and compounds potentially early in life, or even as early as when we were in utero, um, yeah. it can create this uh, propensity towards uterine fibroids. Um, uterine fibroids are hormonally sensitive. That means that they grow based on estrogen and, and progesterone in our bodies. Um, and that you need those hormones in order to function and ovulate. And, you know, it's a lot of what uh, makes us women. They're made by the ovaries. Um, but unfortunately, the fibroids also are growing and reliant on those hormones. And so um, there might be a different pathway that they use when they're doing that, too. It has also been linked to vitamin D deficiency. Um, mm. And so that's something that's getting a lot more attention uh, recently in terms of, OK, repleting vitamin D, particularly in women with darker skin and how that could help. Ha carrying more body weight actually increases the risk for uterine fibroids as well as um, meat diets. So the opposite of a plant-based diet. Um, plant-based diet has been shown to decrease your risk for uterine fibroids, whereas um, diets that include meat as well as carrying excess weight, obesity, BMI of 30 and above, increases the risk for uterine fibroids. And can we talk about how that mechanism works? Because I think sometimes, you know, we get into this like fat shaming, you know, cycle, but it's really just at the cellular level of fat cells. Yeah. Correct? I mean, fat tissue is hormonally active. It is um, the largest endocrine organ, if you know, if you're asking mm. an endocrinologist. Um, and so it's not uh, what we call inert. It doesn't just sit there and not do anything. It has um, properties. It kind of can change the way some hormonal signals are read. It can actually produce or change hormones from one st state to another. Um, and so it does play a role in a lot of different health processes, um, but particularly in things like um, insulin and estrogens, um, fat does play a large role, Ooh. you know, so I know, we, can't, so we can't get around it in that way, but tell me a little bit about your, you know, fibroid story too. I know we've um, talked a lot about it, but I found out very traumatically. I'll never forget. Um, I had like a pap smear and, um, they thought like, oh, I think you might have, a, um, a polyp on your cervix or something, which again, kind of like a skin tag, but it's mucosal in terms of it's a different type of texture. It's not really skin. And so they're like, oh, it was an MP. And I was an intern in residency. So I didn't know, you know, I was just like, okay, let me get an ultrasound. I wouldn't necessarily do that, you know, as a clinician, you know, hit me up in the DMs. But um, <laughs> I got an ultrasound for some possible cervical polyp. Oh my goodness, get to this ultrasound. And I'm just on the phone with my bestie, like, yeah, girl, da -da 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 -da, like just chit chatting. The ultrasonographer starts like scanning. She's like, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like, what? She's like, you didn't know you had all these fibroids? And I was like, what? And I'm like, I'm like a GYN, OBGYN resident intern. Like, you know, and I'm like, wait, I got fibroids? I was shocked because I was completely asymptomatic. I had no symptoms, you know, like there was always something that was like poking right, like above my pubic bone, but I never, I just thought it was like, Ooh, you know, my muscles are toned. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a fibroid on top of my uterus saying like, hello, you know? And so 
that was really traumatic to find out that way because you know it's important that you know radiologists give or you know your doctor gives you that information or whoever ordered the the study because when you find out about it in real time you don't know how you could don't even I'm like I knew how to process information I knew what I was supposed to do but I'm like a lot of people don't and like you might not be seeing your doctor for a week or two or three or a month you're supposed to just sit with all that weight so that was a very traumatic experience um but honestly, after that, I was just like, okay, I have a gang gang of fibroids, nothing to do. I don't have symptoms. That part I knew. But about a year later, um, or maybe it was 20, actually, okay, the first time it got really bad. I think my periods got heavier, but I really only had two-day periods because I was on the next one, on, which was God gifts to a, a resident. Then <laughs> next thing I know, um, once, you know, I, I was in Ghana. I'll never forget. I was in Ghana on a trip um, in my third year of residency, um, having a, you know, hot girl, hot girl hammer time, like, you know, I like to have, I, I love Ghana, I love a crop. We were at some really nice outdoor place and I had a crazy episode where literally all of a sudden, it was like the faucet thing I talked about, literally like a faucet turned on and bathrooms in Ghana at some places are not like places where you could have an right. emergency situation like that. No, so I was on my phone, like tapping, like we got to get a, we got to get a cab. I told my best friends, like, we got, I was like literally in the middle of a really good conversation, and it was like, gotta go. Gotta go. Mm-hmm. And I still remember the shoes they that messed up. And so, you know, after that, then I became symptomatic, and it was a long road to surgery um, because it, I needed to be like at that point, I knew like after that situation, I went and got reevaluated, and my uterus was actually sixteen to eighteen week size, which is deep second trimester pregnant. Um, and you know, it just was that I was a resident and, you know, residents aren't afforded a lot of like privileges to, you know, like have medically indicated surgeries. So I was put on hold and I suffered for two years. Um, what I call second trimester pregnant, um, between like having to find, it worked well in residency because I had scrubs and I had a scrub card. I had infinite access to if I had to change my clothes at work. Like I was fine in residency when I became an attending and I had to wear real clothes. It was a struggle trying to find something that could um, camouflage the fact that I looked pregnant. Um, and that's why it's also important. If you see someone who looks pregnant, you don't have to say, don't say anything because it could be a medical like situation that they don't want to talk about. So, you know, I definitely look pregnant. I just was really good. That's how I know I should be like a fibroid stylist. Hit me up in the DMs. But I knew how to dress. I call it my, my largest fiber. So the largest fibroid I had was actually 14 centimeters and went all the way like up past my belly button. And I always keep the picture of my MRI. Like I use it all the time for pubbing for fibroids because yeah. it's pretty like incredible. Um, yeah. But I called her Felicia. And so I used to always say Felicia because I was going to have a Bye Felicia party because Bye Felicia had to go. And Felicia did go in 2018, which was, whew, when I tell you that wig came off, that was like, it just felt better. I felt lighter. Um, but I still do, you know, like one thing, you know, we talked, we didn't talk about risk factors, but one of some of my major risk factors are besides being black are also delaying childbearing or, you know, waiting until my deep in my thirties to have children because that, that estrogen is constantly in your cycle. Like it's predominant when you do go through pregnancy, then it's your progesterone dominant. And so, you know, I was really nervous because it took two years at the two year mark after having my surgery, I was like, okay, my Maya met me. I was like, I have to do something. And so I had my daughter, which was a really a, a blessing because um, 
when I, you know, got pregnant, I actually saw that I did have another fibroid. So Felicia had grandkids and I was like, wait, <laughs> hold up. <laughs> Felicia kids is in there. Am I? Felicia and company. Yo, like need us to the room and Felicia's child is down. Pick me in there, you know, taking up all the room. So that was a, interesting because it was like five centimeters. But, you know, when I had my C-section, I was like, I don't want to have any more period, bleeding, all that. So I literally had a Kylina put in at the time of my C-section. And I've been very happy ever since. Between yeah. modifying my risk in terms of having a baby and having that nine months of like a break from estrogen, then I breastfed for 13 months. That put an additional break on my body from estrogen. It kind of help mod- helps modify your risk, essentially, at least theoretically. I can't say that, you know, fibroids aren't going to come back because they, they always do. But it has given me a really good window of two years of like, bless where I don't have to think about my fibroids so yeah that's my well, story that's great I mean intrauterine devices are good for so many different reasons the ones that contain progesterone like Kylina, Morena, Skyla, Lyletta are really great because they can actually be used to help you know uterine fibroid symptoms it doesn't mean that the fibroids go away it doesn't mean that you will be magically cured but for women who are suffering either from heavy bleeding or from very painful periods those intrauterine devices or iud's can really be helpful yes god bless them So one last question I want to ask, because I think it's important for so many people. I think there is a huge market um, and a lot of attention now is people are understanding that, okay, fibroids are a thing. I'm affected. I'm symptomatic. What can I do about it? You know, in our community, there's a lot of hesitation with pursuing traditional medical treatments, including use of hormonal contraception, like those IUDs that we mentioned or other things to help with their symptoms. And people are very much interested in more natural, um, homeopathic uh, ways of managing their uterine fibroid pain. So what are some of the things that you've heard of um, for managing uterine fibroids? So I'll never forget when I was actually in medical school in DC at Howard, um, I was at like, I used to study at a cafe, Tris, shout out to Tris um, (laughs) (laughs) in uh, Adams Morgan. And I remember I met this awesome black woman and she was telling me about how like, oh yeah, for fibroids, yeah, you got to stay away from soy. That was like the thing. And so after that, I stopped drinking soy milk because I've been drinking soy milk since college. And so I was like, no more soy. I can't eat tofu, nothing. I don't want to add any more estrogens to my body. And I don't know if my diet changed, changed anything, which I'll see, I still ended up with a surgery. So I don't know. Um, but then I just kind of became hyper alert. But that's the main thing I feel like I've heard about in the streets about like things to modify uh, fibroids, basically. Yeah, I think diet plays a big role in your overall health and avoiding, you know, soy products. And there's the fear is that there's phytoestrogen properties from soy. Could it accelerate fibroids? Sure. I think there's probably way more offensive things in our diet, but it doesn't hurt, you know, to just really pay attention to labels. You know, I think I hear, I've heard a lot about teas recently. Mm. So fibroid healing teas, um, fibroid healing steams um, with steaming your vagina and that's going to like melt and dissolve your fibroids. Um, And even, you know, other oral things, juices, detoxes. Um, You know, I think that again, just trying to be sensitive to all my girlfriends who really want a way 
to manage their symptoms and not be reliant on medication. Mm -hmm. I think there could absolutely be a role for diet and exercise. There's a really great um, fibroid center out of NYU with Dr. Shirazian, where she really looks at that 360 approach to management, you know, reducing weight, being really cognizant with nutrition, um, using different kind of pelvic pain therapies um, and seeing if that's enough to manage it. But, you know, with using some of the natural things alone, I think it's always good to maybe check in with your doctor, maybe, you know, even follow the fibroids on ultrasound mm-hmm. or MRI to see what the, you know, the effect is. I've had some people who've come to me and have followed some of these things for years and then been very upset that their fibroids were growing or multiplying. Yeah. Um, and maybe we could have caught it sooner if they were being more closely managed. Yeah, hashtag no surprises. I think that's the thing is, I think what you're saying is to to follow. And I think that gets into our City Girl sermon, mm-hmm. which is to, in the words of Iyama, do the work. You can't, you know, if you have any like, you know, any of like, yo, you, shout out to Iyala. You know, I love Iyama. Love you know. Iyama. We all love it. Seriously, if we can get her on here, but because she's going to have everybody steaming everything. But <laughs> I will say that, you know, once you have any symptoms, especially if you have heavy periods, make sure you get an ultrasound. You can advocate for yourself to get an ultrasound or just ask, like, oh, I don't need an ultrasound. I like to ask things like, in a passive aggressive tone sometimes that's just me but i'm like oh i don't need an ultrasound and it's like wait the person will think does she need ultrasound yeah we can do that ultrasounds are very benign you know procedures they're not very costly i think most women especially black women are black girlfriends who you know are at increased risk of you know fibroids you know we went through some of the risk factors we talked about some of the things that make fibroids grow if you fit into those categories you should know. And I think it's kind of just like, you know, when everyone talks about knowing your numbers, when it comes to ovarian reserve, know your fibroid status, because it's so common. The amount of conversations I have with girlfriends about this personal and otherwise, it's literally, you know, I remember years ago, I did a, a, a a vision board and I put fighting fibroids because it was an essence article like that. I cut that out, put that on my vision board. And literally, I feel like that's my life's work <laughs> to fight fibroids in my personal life, in my family life, in my that's girlfriend cool. life, in my work life. Like I fight fibroids, like, you know, I'm ready, you know? So <laughs> I really think, you know, it's important to just know, like, do I have fibroids or not? And if you don't, there are other reasons to have heavy periods and there should be more investigations like an endometrial biopsy or mm-hmm. possibly, um, just figure out how to treat your symptoms in the interim while we try and find a diagnosis, but definitely like at least get an ultrasound. It's very simple and it rules out at least a structural cause that can affect your fertility in the future, can um, affect how you manage your symptoms of heavy periods. And affects your and also, quality of life. Girl, that It's part. a huge impact on quality of life. Another mentor of mine who has dedicated his life to fibroid research at the um, kind of more basic science level, Dr. Avon Alhindi, he does a lot of studies on how having fibroids and living with fibroids affects your quality of life. And so it's not just a medical issue. It's also kind of can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety. Mm. That feeling you felt in Ghana when you have to rush home and maybe you forgot, you know, or maybe you're surprised by the bleeding. 
um, those those little moments kind of add up over time. The uh, way that people speak about you when they see your fibroids on ultrasound, I think that's so important for me to remember because I see lots of big surprise fibroids all the time and, you know, making sure to kind of temper your response and not kind of create an alarm in someone who's experiencing this for the first time or makes them think that something is wrong with their body. I think that's super important. But so also don't forget it. that in terms of quality of life, like the other side of fibroids and having heavy periods is anemia. And when I tell you I have pica, which is a, a symptom or it's a syndrome of having like severe anemia where you might eat like ice chips or eat dirt or eat all types of stones, rocks, like all types of weird Corn things. Starch. It <laughs> makes you like, yes, crave random things. And I tell this, anytime patients tell me like, oh yeah, I was just, I'm like, oh girlfriend, like that's a problem. And when I tell you when I was in residency, the first thing I would do when I came into the hospital, because nothing is like, nothing beats hospital ice. I would beeline straight for the machine, get a huge 64 ounce thing of ice chips and just work on it while I was working on my notes with patients. And that is the problem. Like that is a huge quality of life thing because literally as soon as I had my surgery and I had um, IV iron, which I totally recommend, I was stubborn and didn't want to get an IV to get it done weekly, but I completely recommend it. Even personally, I got IV iron. And when I tell you my, my pica and my like ice chip cleaning, it went away overnight. Like I didn't think about, I didn't, I was like, Ooh, ice. I didn't want, cause I was a person who didn't like ice in their drink when they went in their tap water at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. But now it was like, you know, oh, I don't want, I went back to that. I was like, oh, I don't want, I was like repulsed by ice again, just (laughs) like that overnight. And so I say that to encourage you to just know that there's different ways that fibroids kind of like say surprise and you just don't know it until you talk to someone about it. Yeah. I mean, I think this was such a worthwhile conversation. I'm so glad for and proud of both of us for sharing our stories. And, you know, we hope that it helps somebody in the future. I love the City Girl sermon. Do not ignore your symptoms. Do not ignore your family history. Do not ignore your fibroids. You owe it to yourself uh, to see what's on the other side of this, to either manage your symptoms, to be aware, to track the fibroids over time um, so that they don't take over your life. Exactly. And we know that five words is a heavy, heavy topic. So there's a bonus part two. So stay tuned. In a couple of weeks, we will have part two for you where we talk about surgical management of five words, the part that some people don't want to deal with, but we got to talk about it. Well, thanks, girlfriends. It's been great having you and follow us on mdgfexp.com. Bye, Yay. girlfriends. <laughs> That's awesome. And here's where to find us. Hi, I'm Dr. Joy Cooper. I am a board certified obstetrician gynecologist based in the Bay Area of California. I am currently not seeing patients in person anymore. I'm completely 100% telehealth. You can find me at Culture Care. Our website is OURculturecare.com because we do it for the culture, our culture. We are a telemedicine startup that is connecting Black women with Black physicians at the cost of a copay. So if you would love to see me and you're based in California and New York shortly, you can just go on our website and see me. I am Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. I'm a board certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and infertility specialist. The long name for that is reproductive endocrinology and infertility is my field. I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. And you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Tia Jackson Bay.
Thanks for joining us and don't forget to subscribe and check out our website, ndgfexp.com. Have a great one, girlfriends.